December of 69 AD, so roughly 40 years after the suffering, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus to heaven, Vespasian was named emperor of the Roman Empire, Caesar. And it was for important reasons. Vespasian was powerful. He knocked off all the other generals seeking to be emperor. Vespasian was purposeful. He gave grain to a starving Rome and gifts of money to the Roman poor. Vespasian was producer of peace. He ended civil war, established peace, hoped for a new golden age. He cleared the seas of pirate ships and filled it with merchant vessels, thus showing his control over the seas. Vespasian was prestigious. He was associated with prophecies and supernatural healings. So you could say that this emperor, this Caesar Vespasian, was good news. Roman scribes would write messages and give public announcements about this good news of Caesar saying, this is the euangelion, the gospel, the good news of Caesar Vespasian, a son of God, which was a common title that emperors would use. So when Mark begins his story, when he begins his story about Jesus, he opens with some epically controversial words. Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel, euangelion, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark takes this phrase of Roman imperial language, a common designation for Caesar, and he inserts Jesus. No Roman reader of Mark would miss this explicit challenge in these opening words. Mark is saying that the so-called good news of Caesar is nothing compared to the true good news of Jesus Christ. And you may ask, well, why, why is Mark doing this? Well, uh, people were experiencing a crisis of faith. The church was being persecuted. It's easier to give in to Caesar and the way of the world and all that it promised rather than to follow Jesus. Mark's gospel, as well as Matthew and Luke and John, are each a response to Roman imperial propaganda and empire. In other words, Mark's gospel is asking the question, is Caesar Lord or is Jesus Lord? You cannot have both. In this dominant empire where the norm, the gospel truth, where every reality is Caesar is Lord, the Christian community claims a radical confession. Kurios Jesus Christos. Jesus Christ is Lord. Effectively erasing the name Caesar and inserting Jesus. The beginning of the gospel of not Caesar Vespasian, but Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's a highly illegal statement, punishable by death. It declares allegiance. It defines faith. It destroys pride. It divides humanity. Curios Jesus Christos. Jesus Christ is Lord. And by Lord, this means that Jesus is master with full rights and authority. Well, that's something politically subversive. That's something disruptive and divisive. Yep. Jesus Christ is Lord is the confession that brought persecution and death to Christians in the Roman Empire because the confession Jesus Christ is Lord is rebellious. For Caesar is Lord, 
and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess it. You know, in the empire, you can worship any God you want. Follow any religion you desire. Pursue any belief you like as long as you don't claim exclusive truth. As long as you keep things to yourself. As long as you're still willing to bow and confess Caesar is Lord. And the parallels for today are screaming. You know, some beliefs are simply not tolerated in a tolerant society. But Christianity is an all-or-nothing confession. Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, or he was not. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, or he did not. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, or he did not. Christianity is an all-or-nothing confession confessed with our lips and with our lives. Jesus Christ is Lord. So then, if Jesus Christ is Lord and Caesar is not, and if Mark's saying that the so-called good news of Caesar is nothing compared to the good news of Jesus, how does he do it? And what good news of Caesar is Mark actually responding to? And how is he using his story and the actions and characteristics of Jesus to show how Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not? Well, in a world where Vespasian takes from his abundance and addresses scarcity by giving bread to a starving Rome, Jesus takes from scarcity and creates abundance as he takes loaves of fish or loaves of bread and fish and multiplies them to feed the thousands twice, Mark 6 and Mark 8. Vespasian thought he controlled the seas, shipping lanes, merchant vessels, ridding the seas of pirate ships. Well, Jesus walks on water, Mark 6, and calms the storm, Mark 4. Vespasian supposedly heals a man's withered hand, so does Jesus. Mark 3, 1 through 6. Vespasian supposedly heals a blind man by spitting on him. Jesus heals a blind man by spitting directly into his eyes. Mark 8, verse 23. While Vespasian maintains Pax Romana, so-called Roman peace, Jesus gives true peace. In every episode, Mark shows Jesus outmatching and outdoing Vespasian. Theologically, Mark shows how no force or power can stop the message of Jesus and his salvation. No blindness can keep it from being seen. No deafness from being heard. No muteness can keep it from being spoken. Curios Jesus Christos. Jesus Christ is Lord. And so today we continue with our sermon series, Jesus Is in which we're exploring the various characteristics of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark, exploring this question, who is Jesus? We've looked at the characteristics of how Jesus is empowering and willing and peace, how Jesus is life, how Jesus is miracle worker. And today we continue with Jesus is Lord. And the question I want us to consider today is who is Lord of your life? And what does your life reveal because of it? Today we're going to explore a familiar story in the Gospel of Mark, and in doing so, I want us to view it in two layers. Number one, for the story's intent. Let's look at the story for what it is and what it says, and secondly, for the author's intent. Let's look at why Mark might be telling it in this particular way. 
But before we begin, let's, let's stand together and pray. If you're able to stand, I want to invite you just to stand um, as we open up ourselves entirely to God to see if, hey, are you the one who should be Lord of my life? So God, we come before you today. And we ask, Lord, that you would speak to each of us today as we address this question for our lives. Who is Lord of our life? And are you, God, worthy to be Lord? I pray that you would reveal that to each one of us personally, individually today, that we would address that question. God, who is is Lord of my life? And what does my life reveal because of that? We come today to hear from you directly, God. So speak, we pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. You can sit down. I don't don't know. That was just something. Get the blood flowing, you know? This is what it says in Mark chapter 5. If you want to turn there with me in your Bibles or on your smartphone, on your device, um, I invite you to follow along because it's super important that it's not just me who's reading from the Scriptures, but that we are all doing it together, all hearing from God through the reading of His Word. This is what it says in Mark chapter 5, which is the second book of the New Testament, Matthew and then Mark. If you don't know where to go, go to the table of contents. That's a great place to start. Mark chapter 5, verse 1 says, So they came to the other side of the lake, to the region of the Gerasenes, just as Jesus was getting out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came from the tombs and met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, For his hands and feet had often been bound with chains and shackles, but he had torn the chains apart and broken the shackles in pieces. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Each night and every day among the tombs and in the mountains, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. From the crown of his head to the sole of his feet, he looks corpse-like and ghoulish. His hair is matted and crawling with his closest companions, the tiny insects that share his bed. His face is hard and and deformed by the effects of hatred and sorrow and pain. His torso, flayed and scarred, the only method he finds momentarily effective to relieve his suffering. His wrists and ankles are are grotesque and gnarled like a sickly knotted tree. If his mutilated feet could sink roots, he'd fit in picture perfect with the windswept landscape. The gusts blowing in from the northwest waft his corpse-like aroma back into the tombs he calls home. The nearby villagers complain to one another, and they bring it up in their town hall meetings. Folks, 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 we can't have this. Our funerals have been constantly disturbed by this howling and shrieking. The torturous cries is hideous. And so they try for a while. Move it or lose it, they say. We're going to have to take matters into our own hands, they protest. But he won't listen. He's out of control. He's ravenous. When they commission their finest blacksmiths and strongest men to subdue him, to shackle him, the beast unleashes himself and breaks their finest shackles and fetters like twigs. But if you can manage a momentary split-second glimpse into his eyes, 
you might still be able to see the fractured remnant of what still might be a man. Mark chapter 5, verse 1 says, So they came to the other side of the lake, to the region of the Gerasenes. So just after Jesus had stilled the storm and calmed the wind and the waves like Kim talked about last week, here we are arriving in Gentile, non-Jewish land, a territory on the southeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the journey across the Sea of Galilee had begun with several boats full of disciples. But then the story changes. Verse 2, just as Jesus was getting out of the boat, wait a second, now it's only one boat and only one Jesus getting out. And now as, as we're reading the Bible, I think it's very important to consider what's there and what also is not there. Here we see, just as Jesus was getting out of the boat, like, where are the disciples? Still in the boat, I I guess? Like, what happened to begin with as a large number has now been reduced to just Jesus alone, and perhaps and probably for good reason, because a man with an unclean spirit came from the tombs and met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for his hands and feet have often been bound with chains and shackles, but he had torn the chains apart and broken the shackles in pieces. And I mean, I'm pretty swole. I know you guys tell me that all the time. You don't? Why are you laughing? messed up. Your husband told me that this week. He's like, David, you look so swole, man. No, he's just being nice. But like, imagine the strength it takes to break shackles. I read a story about a 16-year-old girl at the Rose Parade who busted the loops on handcuffs. 16 years old, that takes like 1,900 PSI to break Smith & Wesson handcuffs. Anyone done that before? No, right? But a 16-year-old girl does. She did happen to be high on PCP and, you know, broke all the bones in her hands. But these disciples are looking exceptionally smart for staying in the boat. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Each night and every day among the tombs and in the mountains, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. If I were Jesus, I would have been like bolting back to the boat. I've been like, Peter, get out. Help me push. Andrew, get those oars going. Thaddeus, turn this thing around. Let's get out of here. But Jesus is not repulsed by anyone. Not prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, lepers, the blind, the deaf, the mute, the lame, crippled, withered, swollen, demon-possessed, or even a man who's a sore sight for eyes. And this dude is something else. He's naked. We find that out later. Demon-possessed. Find that out later, too. Animalistic. A graveyard resident who's filthy, out of control, and covered in scars. Verse 5 says, Each night and every day among the tombs and in the mountains, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. And the Greek describes it as katakopto. It's this cutting this gashing self-mutilation, or as we call it in our day, self-harm. Do you realize one-third to one-half of U.S. adolescents ages 10 to 19 have engaged in some type of self-harm? Cutting and burning are the most common forms of non-suicidal self-harm, and 70% of teens engaging in self-harming behavior 
have made at least one suicide attempt. The average age of the first incident of self-harm is 13 years old. Like, what are the reasons for this? Teen cutting and self-harm, 55% said something to the effect of, I wanted to get my mind off my problems. 45% said it helped me to release the tension and stress and relax. And those I've talked to say, man, I just feel numb. And I wanted to feel something. As a parent, if you're hearing this, you're like, what, what, what do I do? Or like, is my teen self-harming? Or, or when you do find out, like, what? you probably are shocked and you think like, oh man, I, I feel like a failure, right? But no, no, no. Therapists will tell you self-blame is not helpful at all. In fact, don't react with anger or denial. Don't assume that this is just some phase that they'll grow out of. Don't say like, what did I do wrong as a mother or a father that you would do this to yourself? Don't ask, why are you doing this to yourself? But instead, do admit that you and your child have a problem, that you need help. Do take the problem very seriously. Do be completely supportive. Do immediately seek treatment. Talk to your doctor to find a program that can help and realize that treatment, it might include medication. It should probably include counseling one-on-one -on -one or family altogether over a long period of time where setbacks are part of it. But if you're currently self-harming, I want to encourage you. Talk to somebody. It's the hardest part. But that's it. That's the hardest part. Starting the conversation, but it's also the bravest part. The bravest part to say something, to talk to someone, a parent, a friend, a doctor, a teacher, a counselor, a pastor. That's what we're all here for. Talk to someone. And if you go to someone that, that you think you trust and they just downplay it, like, go find someone else who will take it seriously. It's so important to learn healthy ways to deal with stress and with emotions and in all things, first and foremost, and all the way through, go to Jesus. First and foremost, and all the way through, go to Jesus. Even like this man living in the tombs in Mark chapter 5, even though he's naked— demon-possessed, animalistic, a graveyard resident who's filthy, out of control, and covered in scars. Go to Jesus. Verse 6, it says, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran, and proskuneo bowed down before him. Proskuneo, it's the same Greek word that's used to describe what the wise men do before baby Jesus in Matthew chapter 2, in the Christmas story. It means to fall down before, even to, to worship. Now, I don't think that this demon-possessed man is worshiping Jesus here, but his bodily actions sure look like he's been hit by the undeniable reality that Jesus Christ is Lord, and all he can do is proskuneo. All he can do is bow down to the complete power and authority of Jesus. And then verse 7 says, Then he cried out with a loud voice, Leave me alone, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. So the demonic powers recognize Jesus' superiority from the very beginning. I am implore you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Did you catch that? 
Not my uh, weird demon voice, but this reality that Jesus is already on the initiative. He's already on the attack. He's not reacting to the requests or the aggression of the demons. Jesus has shown up in alien territory. And this is the first time that the author of the Gospel of Mark places Jesus in Gentile lands. And what is he doing? Taking back everything for the kingdom of God. Verse 9 says, Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, my name is Legion, for we are many. He begged Jesus repeatedly not to to send them out of the region. So Jesus asks the man his name, and he replies, Legion. It's a Greek word with Latin origin. Legion, or legion, is a military term, referring to a body of Roman soldiers made up of 6,826 soldiers, 6,100 foot soldiers, and 726 armed horsemen. The man's reply, my name is Legion, shows that this man is so fractured. Like multiple people, multiple beings speaking on his behalf. It's like saying, the other day I went to the dentist and I got our teeth cleaned. I was riding my bike there and I crashed us. And thank God that when I got up by myself, no one saw me crash us. The man is extremely fractured. And this encounter, the kingdom of God, confronts the kingdom of evil. And in this pleading request, the demons begged Jesus repeatedly not to send them out of the region. If they can stay in the region, maybe there's potential other victims they can destroy their lives because demons are destructive. They are destroying the man. They destroy whatever they touch. But Jesus... He won't have any of it. Verse 11 says, There on the hillside a great herd of pigs was feeding... So you know this is definitely Gentile area, non-Jewish area, because for Jews in their culture, pig is the prominent symbol for what it means to be unclean. And the demonic spirits begged him, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. Jesus gave them permission. So the unclean spirits came out and went into the pigs. Then the herd rushed down the steep slope into the lake, and about 2,000 were drowned in the lake. So a bunch of demons are cast into pigs and they rush down the steep slope and are drowned in the lake. A handful decision, if you ask me. A pork choice. I know. But let me just piggyback on that. Ah, oh, man. Yeah, it, it does seem like a strange choice of words and images that Mark uses. Legions and pigs. Why pigs? When we look at the Greek, it's even stranger because there are words included that just seem out of place. It's either all hogwash or Mark is describing something even more significant going on here. Let me explain. Verse 9. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, my name is Legion, for we are many. Legion... That signifies the largest Roman military unit, 6,000 to 7,000 soldiers, the true source of Roman power. What? 
Verse 9, verse 11, there on the hillside, a great herd, a gele of pigs was feeding. A gele? That's not your typical word to describe a herd of pigs, but it is the word to describe military units. What? Verse 13a, Jesus gave them permission, epitrepo. He gave them permission. Epitrepo could be translated as he dismissed them with military overtones. What? And then, verse 13b, then the herd rushed, Hormason, down the steep slope into the lake. Hormason, well, that could be translated as charged, like a military unit charging or assaulting in battle. What? Like, what's with all this military language going on in this story about pigs jumping into the lake and dying? What about the pigs? Why pigs? At this particular time, the Roman 10th Legion was stationed in Israel with the insignia of a wild boar on their shields and flags and banners. And where are we located in this story? The southeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee in Gerasa. Well, during the Jewish revolt, Roman soldiers burned the city of Gerasa and slaughtered those in it. Those carrying out the slaughtering were Roman soldiers of the Roman 10th Legion with the insignia of a wild boar on their shields and flags and banners. And they were commanded by none other than Vespasian, emperor of the Roman Empire, Caesar. So on one level, we've got Jesus casting demons into pigs that drown on the sea. On another level, we learn an important lesson about who is Lord. While Vespasian takes from his abundance and gives bread to a starving Rome, Jesus takes from scarcity and multiplies loaves of bread and fish to feed the thousands twice. Vespasian thought he controlled the seas. Jesus walks on water and calms the storm. Vespasian supposedly heals a man's withered hand. So does Jesus. Vespasian supposedly heals a blind man by spitting on him. Jesus does it better. Vespasian maintains Pax Romana. Jesus gives true peace. While Vespasian commands Roman legions, Jesus defeats legions of demons. And by casting legions into the sea, Jesus symbolically reverses Vespasian's victory at Gerasa. Again, Jesus outmatches and outdoes Vespasian. Jesus is greater, stronger, unparalleled, unprecedented, far more qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. Vespasian is no match, hardly comparable. But what about the pigs? What about the pigs? Well, of course, you know, the Roman 10th Legion and all of that on their, their the shields, and spear, shields and banners and flags. But also for Jews, pigs were prohibited as food. Not because they were unclean in themselves, but because Torah considered them unclean for you. Ritually impure, not dirty. But abstinence from pork was a matter of faith, a matter of God's law that set Israel apart as a holy, distinctive people. It was a boundary marker between faith and unfaith, and Jewish martyrs had even given their lives over it. Bacon was a big deal. For Romans, though, and other Gentiles, the pig was a sacred animal. 
to be sacrificed to the gods and consumed in sacred meals, especially at the family tomb and on ritual occasions. Sausage, ham, chorizo, pulled pork, pepperoni, pork chops, sweet and sour pork, spare ribs, ham bone soup. But as it relates to this story, the destruction of the pigs becomes a theological issue. Here, pigs apparently become suitable, a suitable refuge for demons. And their destruction represents the victory of Jesus over paganism, over the empire, over the theology of Rome. There are so many layers to this story. Let's get back to it. Verse 14 says, Now the herdsmen ran off and spread the news in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man sitting there, clothed in his right mind, the one who had the legion, and they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demon-possessed man reported it, and they also told about the pigs. Then they began to beg Jesus, just as the demons had begged to leave their region. So the Gentile herdsmen are, I'm sure, freaked out and upset for good reason. Jesus just put a dent in their finances. Jesus just put a heavy financial burden on them. I mean, imagine if you own like a Tesla car lot on the cliffs of Malibu and all of a sudden Jesus starts casting demons out of some dude and 2,000 of your finest electric automobiles go crashing into the sea. Jesus just put a dent in their finances. He's taken their livelihood and provision, but Jesus shows you can't put a price tag on restoration. And still the crowd pleads with Jesus, just go away. Go away, man. Leave us alone. They're freaked out and upset for good reason. Jesus not only put a dent in their finances, Jesus also put a dent in their worldview. Oh, Jesus is Lord? Ooh. So then what might that mean if Jesus is the one with complete power and authority? He's obviously got it. I mean, this story is not about the response of faith and the transformation that happens. It is about an invasion into alien territory and reclaiming it for the kingdom of God. Verse 18 says, As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed asked, literally begged, that's what the Greek says, begged, just like the demons begged, just like the townspeople begged, begged if he could go with him. But Jesus did not permit him to do so. Instead, he said to him, go to your home. How long has it been since he went home? Go to your home and your people and tell them what the Lord has done for you that he had mercy on you. So he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, a group of 10 towns, Gentile towns, united by their Greek culture and heritage and religion. He goes and proclaims in the Decapolis what Jesus had done for him, and all were amazed. Just think about this man, naked, maybe not so much, but think about it. Demon-possessed, animalistic, a graveyard resident, filthy, out of control, covered in scars. In Mark's gospel, he becomes Jesus' first missionary. Sent out into pagan lands with the reality of who Jesus is. 
And I wonder um, how many of us get hung up right there. I'm not qualified. I don't know enough about the Bible. I don't really, I don't know. I don't know what I know. I don't really think I know all that much. Dude, look at this guy. Naked, demon-possessed, animalistic, a graveyard resident, filthy, out of control, covered in scars. I don't see that here. So what's stopping us from going out and sharing the message? Jesus can transform our lives. We might not look like this, but you know what? Jesus can reclaim anything and make anything brand new. It's all because of this something dramatically has shifted in his life. It has nothing to do with his qualifications or his own abilities. It's the power of God in him and the power of God, what he has done in his life. It's all because something has shifted dramatically. He's hit by the undeniable, unshakable reality that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's not just some like decision or prayer or confession or selection that he makes. It's the true, matter-of-fact, undeniable reality that Jesus is Lord and no one else is. And don't think for a moment that this is some story like trapped in the first century in all the history. No, no, no. The question is the same for you and I today. Who is Lord of your life? And what does your life reveal because of it? Who is Lord of your life? Who is in charge? Who is all-powerful? Mark, in his day, is, I think, communicating how Jesus is greater than the military might and the power of the Roman Empire, even when the so-called peace and prosperity of the Roman Empire looks so tantalizing. Not, let's just say, even when the prosperity and peace of the American Empire is so tantalizing and so appealing. Don't buy it for a second. Jesus is not American. Jesus is not Republican. Jesus is not Democrat. Jesus is Lord. Lord. Now, I imagine not many of you are struggling with bowing down to the Roman Empire today. But what or to who do you bow down to? What is of greatest importance in your life? Who is Lord of your life? Money? Dreams? Power? Control your kids? Who's Lord of your life? Your job? A relationship? Grades? Popularity? Who is Lord of your life? Success? Fulfillment? Lust? Pride? Anger? You? But if you are Lord of your life, Jesus cannot be. And let's face it, like, how's that working out? Me as Lord of my life? That's flimsy and weak. I'm not all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, everywhere at all times. I'm not the king of righteousness, the king of the ages, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. I'm not enduringly strong, eternally steadfast. I'm not God's son or the sinner's savior. I'm not unparalleled or unprecedented. I'm not qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I'm not indescribable or incomprehensible. I'm not the hope of the nations or the wellspring of life. I'm not sinless, pure, undefiled, the the reality of what it means to be right. I'm not unrepulsed, unbroken, or unending. I'm not preexistent, God incarnate, healing, wholeness, or salvation. I'm not the self-giving, sacrificial lamb who offered his life to make all things with a capital A new. I'm not the destroyer of death and fear and 
guilt and shame and brokenness, but Jesus is. Jesus is Lord, and that is the truest truth of reality. And to live it, embrace it, to have it flow through your veins and change everything about you is to bow everything to his supreme authority and power. It is to bow everything in your life to Jesus who is master with all rights and ability and influence and control for Jesus Christ is Lord and no one else is. So will you live it or try to pretend that something else is. Who is Lord of your life and what does your life reveal because of it? I want you to just close your eyes. Just close your eyes and take a, a deep breath. Remove anything from your lap that might be distracting you. Put the phone down take a deep breath. It's not like yoga or Pilates or anything. Just, just breathe. I wonder how many of us pulled into the parking lot today walked across the courtyard and into these seats. Coffee in hand, hair on point, clothes are clean and shoes on the right feet. But inside, from the crown of your head to the sole of your feet, you feel corpse-like. Beneath your skin, your face feels hardened and grieved by the effects of hatred and sorrow and pain. You carry a heavy load. Maybe you call it a burden, a responsibility, or stress. And I don't know, maybe your torso, or your wrist, your thigh, your inner arm is flayed and scarred. Maybe it's the only method you find momentarily effective to relieve the suffering. I wanted to get my mind off my problems. It helped me to release the tension or stress and relax, or I just felt numb and I wanted to feel something. The place you call home, as busy or as empty as it is, it feels challenging or stressful or lonely like a tomb. Perhaps you feel bound, subdued, shackled by the things that people have said about you. You feel pressed, crushed under the weight of it all. The actions, the drama, anxiety, I don't know. But I do know this. As fractured as you may feel, as filthy as your situation may seem, as out of control as things look, as covered in scars as your, your life might appear to be, Jesus is pulling up on the beaches, the shores of your life, ready to change everything out of the boat and into the waters, lapping at the shoreline of your heart, soul, your mind, and strength. He's not repulsed by anyone. He's not repulsed by you. In fact, Jesus is showing up to take 
take back everything for the kingdom of God. And as he stands here sopping in his robes, you can beg him to leave or you can bow before him. Who is Lord of your life? 